Turn your Bibles, we continue our sermon series from Peter's first letter to the churches in Asia Minor. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We begin in just a little bit in, in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4 will begin in just a little bit in verse 12. The third Sunday of Advent is joy. You've concluded that by now. Advent means the coming of the arrival of the Christ. And so as we count down, we're on the Sunday of joy. Pastor, I don't have any Christmas joy. How could I if you only knew what I was going through? Peter's message to suffering people in chapter 4 and this first epistle is keep on rejoicing. Peter is telling the followers of Christ to keep Christmas joy in the midst of chaos. Sadness Should Be Shared was a title of Carol Weston's usually witty and humorous backtalk column in McCall's magazine. But this particular column was not humorous. Carol explains that upon her father's death, she found herself absolutely paralyzed in life at a standstill. She was dreaming about her father's gourmet cooking and seeing his face in every man she looked at. And for comfort, she would call her mother every day, day after day. She found her mother a rock of composure, a bedrock of strength. And that, that was the problem, Carol says. I, I cried on my mother's shoulder, but she never soaked mine in return. And yet one day as her mother cleaned out her husband's tobacco drawer, the smells of dad, the leather pouch, the cedar box, the apple tobacco, it brought to her the long-awaited tears and she called her daughter this time and the healing began. Carol says, because my mother shared her sadness with me, I found a way now to share her joy. Because my mother shared her sadness with me, I found a way to share her joy. Like Carol Weston discovered, that trouble should be shared. You and I are going to discover this morning from this first letter by the Apostle Peter that we are called upon as Christians to share in the troubles of the Christ. And as we experience the troubles of being in Christ, we should keep on rejoicing. Peter says, keep on rejoicing even when trouble comes. This is a powerful message of Peter this first letter to the Christians of what we would call Asia Minor, today we would call Turkey. Turn there to 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means that any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. Up until now, Peter has written in this letter warning his readers about being trapped by various temptations. He's warned them about hatred and deceit and hypocrisy and speaking evil of one another. He's urged them that more important than anything else, they need to have a strong love within the church, a strong love for each other. As you follow suffering in this epistle, It starts out as conditional. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 6. We saw that in our our first sermon in this series. In chapter 1, verse 6, the suffering is simply a possibility. It's It's a condition. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been distressed by various trials. If necessary, is a conditional suffering. Then turn over to chapter 3 and, and verse 14. The suffering has moved from conditional to potential. And 3.14, but even if you should suffer, it's potential. For the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So the suffering in chapter one is conditional and chapter three is potential. By the time we get to chapter four, it is actual suffering. They are suffering. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial in your midst. It's not just conditional or potential. The suffering in their midst is actual suffering. Suffering because they follow the Christ. Most likely the historical setting is just before AD 64 when Nero had a terrible outburst of persecution against the people of God. Nero was the Roman emperor who began to persecute Christians to the point of burning them alive to illuminate his garden, throwing them before the crowds to be torn by wild beasts for sport. And the tension is mounting that Nero is coming to persecute the people called Christians. And Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial in your midst. Now we know a lot about this persecution. There was a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus who actually was alive at the time and he doesn't like Christians either, which makes his testimony all the more powerful. Listen to what Tacitus says 
about Nero and his persecution of Christians. So you'll know about this fiery trial in their midst. To avert suspicion, Tacitus writes about himself. Now remember, Nero himself set the city on fire and he tries to blame the Christians. To avert suspicion about himself, Nero put forward his guilty and afflicted with the most exquisite punishments those who were hated for their abominations, those that the people call Christians. Christus, that means Christ, Christus, from whom the name was derived, that is the name Christians, they, Christus was punished by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And he calls us a noxious form of religion. The noxious form of religion was checked for a time, but it broke out in Judea, and then it broke out in Rome again, where all the abominations meet and find devotees. Therefore, first of all, those who confessed as being Christians, they were arrested. They were interviewed. As a result of their information, a large number were implicated, not so much on the charge of setting the city on fire, but we were guilty of hating the human race, they said. They died by methods of mockery says Tacitus. They were covered in the skins of wild beasts while they were torn apart by dogs. They were crucified. Some were burned as torches to light the night. But after extreme cruelty, sympathy was stirred for Christians. Although he says we were guilty of deserving worse penalties, but there was sympathy for us because men felt that the destruction of Christians was not on the account of public welfare, but rather to gratify the cruelty of Nero. Well, there's a testimony of what they're going through, not written by our friends, but by an enemy, an outside source saying that Nero has tortured the Christians. Well, in the midst of this growing persecution, the Apostle Peter begins to write this epistle. And first of all, he says in verses 12 through 14, rejoice even when persecution comes because of the positive results you receive. Result even when trouble comes because of the positive results you receive. Now, they were surprised especially the Gentiles. The Gentiles had never actually suffered for the religion the Jews had before. But the Gentiles were surprised that in receiving a message about grace, about God's love, and receiving a message like that, that they now found themselves mistreated on the count of their faith. Earlier in the very first chapter, Peter talked about the fiery trial. They're like the refiner of gold refines and purifies his gold with fire, that God purifies his people in the midst of the fires of trouble. But Peter's focus this morning is not on the glow or the heat of the fire, but rather upon the pure results that emerge. Still today, across America, we have a majority of preachers being of the health, wealth, and prosperity persuasion. One would suppose if you follow their theology, his or her theology, that if you profess Jesus Christ as Lord, you'll never have any troubles in your life. No troubles in your family, no troubles in your marriage, no financial difficulty, no difficulties in the workplace, that all will be smooth sailing 
if you'll just say, Jesus is Lord. That's not what we find in the New Testament, is it? However, we look at the New Testament, we find John the baptizer, John the Baptist, and Jesus says, there was no one greater born of women rather than he. And yet John the baptizer finds himself in Herod's stinking dungeon because a woman named Herodias said, well, John had been a, a prophet of courage and had called her out on her sin and now she's down in Herod's dungeon and she will have him beheaded at the end of the story. There is a one greater than any born among women, from women, and, and one who was a forerunner of the Christ, and there he finds himself in the dungeon of suffering and pain, even beheaded for his faith. Now, there is no record in Scripture that an angel came down to the dungeon and said, hey, John, don't worry, God's got a plan, and here's a plan, and this is how it's unfolding. There is no record of a report like that. In fact, John is so confused about the suffering he's having to endure, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, now that I'm suffering, I need to know, are you really the Christ? Or should we start looking for someone else? You don't feel like the Christ right now, John is saying about his cousin. I'm in the dungeon for preaching the truth, for being your prophet. We can move over quickly to the book of Acts where we have Stephen who is stoned for proclaiming the name of Christ. John the Baptist and Stephen, choice servants of God. How about James, the brother of John? There's one verse really dedicated to him in the book of Acts and it reads this way. King Herod Agrippa had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. In fact, tradition tells us that of the 12 apostles, that 10 actually were martyred for their faith. Judas committed suicide, so it wasn't he. That's not much better of an ending. And John, the apostle, is exiled to the island of Patmos. So if you look at the 12 chief followers of Christ, they went through suffering and difficulty. Time and time again, the health and wealth and prosperity gospel is not to be found anywhere in Scripture. I'm not sure where we got it, but somewhere we got the notion that the Christian life should be a piece of cake. I ask you this morning, where is all the evidence in Scripture for the name it, claim it theology that promises that God will skip in front of us with a cosmic broom and sweep away all of the troubles in our families and all the hardships we face in life? It is not in God's Word. In fact, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you have trouble. But take heart. I will overcome the world. Paul wrote, in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Joy in trouble, that's Christmas. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. We have the word of Jesus, we have the word of Paul, and this morning the apostle Peter joins him and says, My brethren, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, but keep on rejoicing even when trouble 
comes. Because as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, you will also rejoice when his glory is revealed. In scripture, there is nothing less than a consistent, unequivocal expectation by every biblical writer that we might possibly suffer. And yet we are determined as the people of God to rewrite the text, to transform the gospel into the happy gospel that we really want. And such efforts make us sitting ducks for Satan's mischief. Why do so many believers think that God owes them a smooth sailing? Or at least, if not a smooth sailing, he owes us a full explanation for all the hardships that we face. Have we forgotten that God himself is holy and majestic and sovereign and that God is not accountable to you or to me? That he's not an errand boy who runs on the assignments that we dole out. He's not a genie to come up out of the lamp and satisfy our whims. He is not our servant. We are his servant. And our very existence, we're here to glorify him. Sometimes, sometimes he performs mighty miracles in our midst. And sometimes he gives us a clear word of explanation for the suffering that we endure. But there are other times, other times when life's not fair. We feel like we're all alone in God's waiting room. And God simply says, trust me, or his silence is deafening. Keep on rejoicing. When you're there, Peter says, because of the positive results you receive. Notice the first positive result there in verse 13. At the uncovering of his glory, you may rejoice triumphantly. Paul expressed the exact same idea when he, he writes to the church in Rome. If joint hairs with Christ, if we suffer with him, likewise we will be glorified with him. As Christians of the New Testament were representatives of the Christ, they would suffer like the Christ suffered, but they would also be glorified like Christ would be the triumphant victor. They will share in his triumph just as surely as they share in his suffering. If you suffer with me, Jesus says, you will glorify with me. If you go down to Calvary with me, You'll emerge from the tomb with me. But all the positive results are, are not for another day. Look at verse 14. He says, you receive the spirit of glory. Yes, the spirit of God is dwelling upon you. You're reproached in the name of Christ while the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory is upon you. That word reproached is the same word that was used by the jeers given to the Christ when he's on the cross. He was reproached and like Christ was reproached even as the Son of God was being crucified that you, if you follow him, you will be reproached as well. That cold, bitter mocking that Christ received on the cross. Oh, the same is true for you and for me. We are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. 
the Holy Spirit during those difficult days. Trouble is unavoidable if you follow Jesus. Jesus says, John 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. The equation remains unbroken. As you share in his troubles, you will likewise share in his glory. And as you receive the insults he received, you will have the same spirit remaining with you as remained with him. The forms of trouble might change, but the positive results are steady. Here's a, a second thing we'll learn. Not only keep our rejoicing when trouble comes, but secondly, rejoice even when trouble comes because your suffering is not the result of your sin. Look at there in verses 15 through 18. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In that name, let him glorify God. Now, don't misunderstand, Peter seems to say. Not all suffering is godly suffering. There is some suffering that might be the result of your sin. And so if you're suffering, make sure it's the kind of suffering that comes from living a godly life, not from being a thief or a murderer or an evildoer or a, and he had to throw in the Baptist one, troublesome meddler right there in the list of murderers, troublesome meddler. I hate how he does that. Be very careful, he says. The kind of positive results that come from godly suffering will not accompany suffering that is a result of your sin. It's innocent suffering, suffering for being a Christ man or a Christ woman. And look what he says in verse 18. And if the righteous man is scarcely saved, what will become of the impious man or the sinner? Now, scarcely doesn't mean that our outcome of our salvation is in doubt, but rather it means that scarcely that our salvation comes through troubled waters, the troubles we go through in this life. And that quotations from Proverbs chapter 11. Be sure that your suffering is not the result of your own evil deeds. The United Press International had a story in the Hartford City News Times about a bank robber in Oakland, California. He explains that the, the bank robber in Oakland, California, well, he got away, well, he tried to get away with $2 million, and now he's suing the bank. He tried to steal $2 million, he got caught, and now he is suing the bank. It appears that as he was making away with the money, they put some of those little purple bombs in the bag of money, and he got some second-degree burns from those purple bombs, and he's pretty upset about it. His, uh, in fact, I'll quote his attorney here, Daniel. His name is Daniel Canlero. Daniel is a very mild fellow, but he feels quite strongly that the bank should not be putting those kinds of bombs in their cash drawers when they're robbed. I mean, it's putting the robber at, at danger, right? Wow. Be sure you're suffering. Daniel made the list. It's not because you're a thief, a murderer, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. We must ask our, ourselves this question this morning. Is my suffering brought about by living a lifestyle that exudes the graces of the Christ? That's godly suffering. The very nature of this world is that it must, it, it must 
lash out at good. Christ was all good, and Christ suffered the most. Here's a third reason to rejoice even when trouble comes, because of your opportunities to help others. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Keep on doing good, even in the midst of suffering. There were no banks in those days, certainly not like today. When a person went on a trip, they had to choose someone, a closest friend, a family member, to entrust all their worldly goods with and to disappoint someone when you were entrusted with their whole financial well-being was a serious offense. So he says, I want you to entrust your most valuable thing, your soul. Trust your soul to God, he says in verse 19. In fact... Jesus did the same thing on the cross, didn't he? In Luke 23, Father, now I, I commit my spirit into your care. Entrust your soul to God in well-doing, he says. What is it that Peter taught should be a companion, a traveling partner with our suffering in Christ? And that is helping others. Commit yourself in well-doing. I've discovered something in pastoring. If I can get two people together who have similar suffering, they can help each other a tremendous amount. A woman who has a mastectomy, I can't relate to that like she can. She's been on that journey. She's been there. We sit down with her, I might ask. When people who have similar suffering find themselves side by side, holding hands and walking on the journey, even as you suffer, use your suffering to help others and to lead them to the place of glory of the Christ. See, all of us plan to help our neighbor clean out his garage just as, just as soon as we get our own clean, right? The problem is ours is never clean, and so we never help anyone because we're focused on ourselves. Peter says, don't wait for your troubles to cease to help others, but rather keep your spirit in the midst of trouble. Keep your joy in the midst of trouble because your suffering will always, your suffering will always give you an opportunity to help someone else. There's a beautiful literary piece called The Station by Robert J. Hastings. Tucked away in our subconscious is an idyllic vision we see ourselves on a long trip that spans the continent. We're traveling by train. Out of the windows, we drink in the passing scene of cars on nearby highways, of children waving at the crossing, of cattle grazing on a distant hillside, of smoke pouring from a power plant, and row upon row of corn and wheat of the flatlands and valleys of mountains and, and rolling hillsides, of city skylines, and of village halls. But utmost in our minds is that final destination. Bands will be playing and flags will be waving. Once we get there, our dreams will come true, and the pieces of our lives will fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. How restlessly we pace the aisles, damning the minutes for loitering, waiting, waiting, waiting to finally arrive at the station. When we reach the station, that'll be it, we cry. 
When I'm 18, that'll be it. When I get that Mercedes, that will be it. When I finally put the last kid through college, that will be it. When I've paid off the mortgage, I will have arrived. When I get that promotion, when I finally reach retirement age, I shall live happily ever after. Sooner or later, we must realize there is no station. There is no place on this earth for arrival once and for all. The true joy of life is in the trip. Station is only a dream. It constantly outdistances us. Relish the moment is a good motto, especially coupled with Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord hath made. This day, this is the day the Lord hath made. You rejoice on the day of joy and be glad in it. It isn't the burdens of today that drive men mad. It's regrets over yesterday and the fear of tomorrow. Regret and fear are twin thieves that rob us of today. So stop pacing the aisles and counting the miles. Instead, climb more mounds and eat more ice cream and go barefoot more often and swim more rivers, watch more sunsets and laugh more and cry less. Life must be lived as we go along. The station will come soon enough. Rejoice today. Even when trouble comes, because of your ability to help others. Christmas is just around the corner. Christ is coming into our chaos. Find joy in unexpected people and in unexpected places. Maybe find joy in a poor carpenter's baby. Born in a tiny town called Bethlehem. Born to unexpected people in a very peculiar place. But Jesus is joy among us. Even, no, especially especially joy in our suffering. For he came to suffer with us and for us. He didn't stay up in heaven and look down at our suffering. We, we broke creation. He didn't. He made it perfect. We broke it. But he didn't look down high from heaven he puts on flesh and suffers with us and for us. And if we suffer with him, we are glorified with him. Let's pray. Oh God, from those streaming today or watching on television or those in this room, it's so hard to know all the suffering of your people. But I do know this. You suffer with us and for us. And however bleak it might have seemed this morning when we awakened, may we hear the word of the Apostle Peter to keep on rejoicing even in the midst of the fiery trial because of the glory of the Christ. We wait for him to come. An unexpected joy and an unexpected place that changes everything. Amen.